This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to a very special Milestone Episode 50 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards Podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and I can tell you that this episode is as special as it gets. Between his massively popular stand-up specials and his critically acclaimed self-titled single-camera TV series on FX, Louis C.K. is the hardly disputed king of comedy. This year though, with no advance notice, the 48-year-old ventured across the aisle to make a drama series, really a tragedy, which is every bit as great as the comedy that he's come to be known for. The multi-camera Horace and Pete feels like a blend of theater and the TV dramas that dominated Hollywood's first golden age of the late 40s and 50s. The show, all 10 episodes of which he wrote and directed, stars him and Steve Buscemi, Jessica Lange, Edie Falco, and Alan Alda, among others. It cost him $4.5 million of his own money to make, and he rolled it out not through a network or streaming service, but through his own personal website, lewisck.net, between January 30th and April 2nd. Critics loved it right away, and now, in the run-up to the Emmys, TV Academy members, who were recently sent screeners, are catching up with it and loving it too. Over the course of our conversation, CK talks about the highs and lows that he's experienced during his rise to prominence, about the challenges of realizing his creative visions without giving up creative control of his projects, and the creation and future of both Louis and Horace and Pete, which might surprise you. He's Louis C.K., he's changing the game, and for more than an hour, I was privileged to call him my guest. Let's go to that conversation. Louis, thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you what a treat it is for us. Thank you. It's been the most fun to prepare for of any of our episodes oh. ever because just to go back and rewatch the stand-up and mm-hmm. the series and all of it. So I appreciate particularly, you know, I know press is your favorite thing to, <laughs> to do. So anyway, to begin with, I just wonder if we were to be having this conversation 10 years ago, mm-hmm. would you believe it if I told you what the next 10 years would entail for you? No, definitely not. I mean, this is 2016. Yes. So that was 2006. Lucky Louie, the first I had stand-up. just finished Lucky Louie, and yeah. it went down in flames. But I had a stand-up special. Yes. And that was a big success. So I was just starting to sell out theaters. And 2006 was when I started to sell out big rooms for me then, 1,000 seats. That's not big anymore. <laughs> and I was just about to get divorced. And I pretty much had given up on television. I definitely wouldn't have thought I'd have a TV show. I didn't see that coming. I didn't even have that as a goal anymore. Yeah. 
I just wanted to do the best I could as a stand-up for the rest of my life. That was the only goal I had. So, yeah, I would not have expected all this to have happened. <laughs> well, for people who don't necessarily know your whole backstory, I wonder mm-hmm. if we can go back. I mean, the thing that kind of jumped out to me the most in learning about you was that you spent a large chunk of your childhood outside of America, right? So I wonder yeah. for you, just if you could share what it was that had you there and then what it was like in terms of shaping you when you came back to America. My dad is Mexican and his whole side of the family is there and he came to America to get an education and met my mom, who's a girl from Michigan, was a girl from Michigan. And so when they got married, they had a kid in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they were both going to school and then they had a kid in Mexico. My sister, my middle sister was born there. And then my dad got a job in Washington, D.C., and that's where me and my sister, my youngest sister were born. And then right after, I'm the youngest, so after I was born, not long after I was born, they moved back to Mexico. My dad got a job in Mexico City. And so I lived there till I was about six or seven, I think, and then we moved back to Massachusetts. So that's why I was there. So I started by speaking Spanish, and my earliest memories are in Mexico. So I remember coming to America. I remember moving here. And it was Oz. It was the greatest place alive. It was the rooms of wherever you are. If you took somebody from Mexico and put them in a crate in the room they're in and then put them on a plane and airlifted them here without them, you don't even being right. aware of the transition, <laughs> and then open the crate in any room in America, like, yeah. like a Motel 6, they'd go, what is this beautiful place? Because it's just so much... The air is cleaner right. and cooler. Uh, I, I mean, this is a it's a complex thing because I, when I go back to Mexico, anywhere in Mexico, I just start crying mm-hmm. because I love it. I love the. You still feel the connection. Yeah, it's home. But America's a really everybody's tall and you know big white faces and blonde hair and there's a president and he gets elected and you can say whatever you want freedom of speech all those basics when you come here as an immigrant basically and someone tells you all this stuff you just you can't believe it besides the coca-cola and the budweiser and the marlboros and you know and another thing that happened i guess not long after you came here is that your name sort of changed at least the spelling of it when did the CK actually. Uh, when I was uh, in uh, summer camp and I had a counselor named Gary Steinberg, who's a really <laughs> good guy, and he used to make fun of my name because it's very, it's this Hungarian name, and he would say, Hey, and he would make fun of me, and, and everybody would laugh, and I didn't like it. So I told him, I don't like when you make fun of my name. And he said, Okay, well, how do I say it? Tell me how to say it because I can't figure it out. And I said, Actually, you say it's CK. It's actually say K, mm-hmm. but that sounds queer. I didn't like the way it sounded. <laughs> so I said it's CK. Right. And he said, okay. And he put a CK on my name, like on the roster, like when they would you know, pick teams yeah. for softball. So I, that's where I got that. From what I understand, as a kid, you were really a technical kind of like guy, uh, almost mm-hmm. a, a, I don't know if you would say a geek, but you were. I very, was. I was a nerd. Yeah. I mean, I was an AV kid. That's yeah. the thing that's gone now. There's no more AV no kits. More. Well, because everything's, uh, you know, you right. could, uh, you have a, your t- your phone is a TV studio. Right, right. But at the time, there was video cameras, and uh, that was fascinating to me that mm-hmm. there was, they were black and white video cameras. The first video cameras I ever worked with was in junior high school. We had black and white video cameras that, that recorded onto reel-to-reel videotape. <laughs> that was one-inch videotape. Right. 
and you literally would record it as reel to reel, and you would edit by cutting the tape itself. Oh my gosh. And it was very imprecise. You couldn't really yeah. get, you couldn't, you didn't know where the frames were. Yeah. But that's what videotape was then. And uh, the, the decks were enormous, and so were the cameras. But I was in a class that was electronics and repair. So I learned how to fix, because everything electronic is finally just a circuit, and it, you know, with you got to get it some power to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then in high school, I, I had a teacher who got me an internship at a cable, local access cable station. And I was able to repair some of the equipment, and I knew how to use it technically. So that's, in the end, you can get access to equipment, because they know you won't break it. That's the, what it always comes down to. And was that the root of your interest in... Filming, yeah, yeah, I really wanted to be a filmmaker, and I, I had cameras. And I used to, I had a dark room in our basement, and I liked taking pictures. And but so I started working at cable access and learning how to use the equipment, and and that was still a, a huge three quarter inch video. These big cassettes yeah. that are about the size of a whole laptop computer now, a big one, <laughs> and that just the tape and the deck was just this huge thing that you had to strap around your you know and then the camera went on your shoulder and nobody could stand more than 10 minutes you know of carrying all that equipment and in fact by the time it was time to finish high school and go on to the next things you were thinking it was a very serious option wasn't it to go pursue a you know filmmaking as your yeah because i'd already done i'd made view i had friends who had band rock and roll bands and i I directed music videos for them it was also a way to get out of trouble. Like, I was always failing classes. So, like, I had a, a, a class that was doing poetry, and I wasn't going ever to the class. But so I brought all the kids from the class to the studio, and I shot a video of everybody reading their poetry in the studio. And so I got an A, an a for the class, even though I didn't participate. Right. So anyway, I just was very hungry for that stuff. I really loved it. And I made little videos with my friends that I edited. I learned how to edit. And back then, when you edited... You edited from one deck to another. Right. So right. you had to literally, in order to edit video, you had to record. You had to have one was the play deck and one was the record deck, and you had to play onto from one deck to the other and record in tiny pieces. And if you wanted to fix something in the middle, right. you you had to go back and take that tape and record it onto. And you had to go down generations and. It was a nightmare, but it was a great <laughs> learning experience. And I guess it, it illustrates for people who wonder, you know, how does this guy edit and do all the other yeah. pieces of the puzzle? It's all it's always been that I've way. I've known how to do that stuff forever. And, and, and in computers, my mother uh, was a computer software engineer, mm-hmm. and she worked in computers when there were punch cards, literally, Jeez. back in the 70s, wow. when they would send her home with some punch cards <laughs> that she had to edit. And then feed them into a computer that would then execute those commands. And then she would bring home computer terminals that were, there wasn't a screen then. There was this green and white paper, and the computer would type to talk to you, and you would type to talk to the computer. (laughs) And then you'd have to go back through the paper to look back at what you said to each other and to sort of track it. It was, and but I watched my mother do that. And we had a modem at home, this big, huge box that she plugged our phone into to, to speak to the computer at work. So when the time came, you're done with high school, you've got to figure out your future. What yeah. was the conversation? I mean, it's, I read something about it came pretty close to being NYU for you, right? I wanted to go to film school, but I had no academic ability. I was a D student. I was literally a D student. I couldn't get through a year of school without a period of like depression and inability. Hmm. So I knew that college was going to be more a failure. My mother was a single mom putting three girls through college 
working and I couldn't, it wasn't fair for me to go just see what happens. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go to college. But at one point I had a junior high school teacher who said she'd do somebody at NYU film school. And so I, I drove down to NYU with my three quarter inch tapes and my, my uh, photographs and stuff that I'd done. And I showed them to a guy and he said, we can get you into the film school. Like you can get admitted here. But at the time I had just started trying stand up. And I thought, I just had an instinct that going to NYU, and also I knew that, you know, there's like 20 kids, they get all get to make one short film, and there's only one director, and the rest are running sound, paying the same right. tuition and running sound <laughs> on some kid's fucking movie. And there was no way I was going to go through that, because yeah. I was already, I was I had run a cable TV station. Right. I had I had professionally run a, uh, I was the technical director right. of a cable TV station. Right. So I just knew it wasn't a way forward. What precipitated that first stand-up that you mentioned doing, and how did you go over? I always loved stand-up comedy, and it was a, one of my favorite things. And I never thought about that I could ever be one. I didn't know how you got to be one. And I was listening to WBCN, the station in Boston, and they had a thing called 5 O'Clock Funnies. And they, they played a guy named Chance Langton, who's a very funny guy. And he was a Boston comedian. I didn't know there were local comedians. I didn't understand that. He was a local comedian. He was very funny. And then they said, if you want to try comedy, you can come and do oh, the open mic night at Stitches, which was a comedy club at the time in Boston. So I wrote down the number and I went. And first they didn't want to let me in because I was 17 years old and it was 21 and over club. And they wouldn't let me go in because you're supposed to sit in the audience till they call you. Right. But so I had to be in the back room with the real comedians. So I had this cool thing where I was automatically in with these guys. Anyway, I was terrible. I did. I tried it twice in the first year when I was a senior in high school. And I was just so ter- nothing. Everything's got just silence. And I couldn't even stay on stage for the whole five minutes. That maybe discouraged you for a little while. I know yeah, you did some other year. things. Yeah, yeah and, I, and then I went back to my cable stuff. Yeah. And a high school and, you know, living that part of life. But. Right. What was it that you did prior to focusing professionally full-time on stand-up? You had a number of other things that you did. I was an auto mechanic for a while, and uh, I cleaned pools, and I did construction. I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, painted houses, uh, millions of things. I had so many jobs. And you just decided at a certain point, rather go for the— Because, I mean, what I guess I wonder, maybe it's a stupid question, but— if you're a comedian who doesn't have a television show or isn't doing specials yet, mm-hmm. how do you make a living? Well, comedy is a hard thing to make a living at, and uh, you have to. It comes down to real basics. This at this time, I was in Boston, and it was just there were these. The comedy was big. It was the '80s. Uh, there were comedy clubs in downtown Boston, but those were hard to get booked in because only the best comedians yeah. work there. But there was comedy, and we call them satellite gigs. So, like in there was Frank's Mexican restaurant in Franklin, Mass. And there was the Naughty Pine, I remember, and Quincy was a gig. There was the um, the Tipperary Pub in Worcester. Okay. Little pubs, little dive bars. Sometimes there would be like a game on in the corner. They wouldn't turn it off while the show was going on. Just restaurants and Chinese restaurants, the, the Kowloon, which is still doing comedy in Saugus, Mass. And you would do a few a night? or and you try. Well, you couldn't because it would be like you drive to Worcester, which is 45 <laughs> minutes from Boston. Right. So the thing was, can you just do it? Like, so as an opening act, you need three acts really to make a comedy show. You have an opening act and then a middle and a closer. Mm-hmm. And uh, an opening act got paid maybe $50, 60 
But if you could get to Worcester, a lot of the headliners were alcoholics and uh, they couldn't drive because they were drunk and lost their license and stuff. So a lot of the thing was, can you drive him to the gig? <laughs> so if you had a decent 20 minutes right. and you could drive the headliner, they used to say, we used to say, if you have a car and an answering machine, you can be a comedian wow. in Boston. But you, it was it was hard to make the money. And you had to go on first and get the attention of a very belligerent crowd. And there would be fights. It was, you know, it was a hard place to come up in Boston. Do you have a theory of why? I mean, I know it's sort of this age-old question, but why is it that so many comedians from Lenny Bruce through Robin Williams and on and on are sort of tortured souls? Is it that type of a person that's drawn to comedy, or does comedy no, bring I don't that know out? That I accept that as a true premise. I think that comedy is the same as any other profession, that it takes all kinds. So there's a certain percentage of people that are depressed or down on themselves. But I think there's plenty of comics who are, you know, happy-go-lucky folks. Right. Yeah. Is your degree of happiness within the profession fluctuated greatly over the years? Oh, I mean, sure. I mean, it's a very huge sacrifice to start being a comedian. It was extremely difficult and uncertain for, you know, the first 25 years I did it. I didn't have any reason to really believe I would get to where I wanted to go or even be able to make a living. So it was very hard. Yeah, those are tough years. And if you look back at you know, try to think what was, in a sense, the toughest point. I mean, I was listening to another interview you did, and I guess there was almost like a turning point when you had this horrible motorcycle accident. Where yeah, you- yeah, and I lost uh, my hair like in a week. And <laughs> Not a good time. Uh, it was really the drag. And, I, and, and then two comedy clubs in New York closed at the same time. And then in New York, there was something like these satellite gigs. You could go to the Holiday Inn in Nanuet and do a week there, and you'd get maybe $175 to headline. God. And it was really hard. It was very hard. And those were, and, and I had already been at that point, I was six, no, about 10 years in. Had been doing it for 10 years. Couldn't transfer to another career. So that gets bleak. That gets tough. And then you're going out on the road and doing really sad little gigs in Virginia, Ohio, <laughs> driving around the country yeah. to do places where nobody's that interested in what you're doing. And it's probably hard to simultaneously have any kind of a personal life when you're just... No personal yeah. life. No, And no sense that, like, I'm going to be... Forget, forget, like, someone's going to discover me, I'm going to be famous. That's not right. even close. You're just trying to stay afloat and trying right. to love still that you're a stand-up. If you don't love being a comedian, if it's not in your blood, then all those things will... You'll just study, you'll just quit. Is um, the other one that seemed like it would have been a, a tough blow to bounce back from would have been SNL, if that's the top of the mountain in a sense, for a lot of people in comedy. I know a lot of your contemporaries went out and... and yeah, well, that that was... I uh, auditioned and I didn't get SNL, but that was in conjunction with ever, all the clubs closing. So to me, SNL wasn't a goal. I wasn't, like, excited to be on SNL, but it was, a, it was a paying job. Yeah. But then I got hired at Conan, and that saved me. So then I had this new thing, which was writing for television. And then, I don't know if this was while you were writing for Conan, but Pootie Tang, which I know in a sense, was a very frustrating experience. This film that you did in 2001, was that also, though, the thing that put in your mind the importance, which you've carried to this day, of just retaining creative control of things? Yeah, that it's not really worth it. If, you, if you're just trying to say, I make movies, th- that's a horrible way to make a living right. if, you're, if you're not enjoying it. Because um, what it, happened with that? Like, well, I just got pummeled with Pootie Tang. I, I mean, I started by making a very strange little movie that didn't quite work. So the, I, the fault started with me because I didn't, I didn't really execute the film very well. And then once it was time to try to fix it, they don't leave it in the control of the 
at the time, 29-year-olds, you know, comedy writer, right. a first-time director, they take it away, and then it becomes a, it gets knocked around studio executives and producers and people who, you know, deal with you in a very contemptuous way. I was, I was treated very poorly, but I, I deserved it in a large degree, so that's the way that goes. And there's no other way. That's how movies go. It's a hardball. It's, yeah. the tough, it's a tough racket. So if you can't take that, then don't do it. It's the way that goes. And also, I learned as I went through the system with Pootie Tang that the people who were putting that kind of pressure on me and the people who were punishing me had worse pressure on them. And they were dealing with even less friendly people <laughs> because there's money on one end and there's art on the other. And right. the closer you get to the money, the harder it gets. And you think the person, you know, when you're a young filmmaker, you're like, this producer's being a dick. But you don't know what that producer deals with. Right. And the person they're dealing with is horrible. Right. So I learned that. I learned to have empathy for my executive partners right. and to learn that they were there to, in the end, they want to make movies too. Everybody that's out here is just trying to make movies. There's a million better ways to make a living than to make entertainment. So everyone you encounter loves doing it on some level. Do you um, think that since that time, your comedic sensibility has really changed a lot? I mean, I know having kids would be one thing that might do that or other things, but like people have sometimes described you as a louder comic at that time. Do you see a marked difference between that yeah, guy? Yeah, I was sillier, and I didn't talk about myself very much. I just talked. I just made funny observations or made weird noises. I just loved <laughs> being on stage. I didn't give a shit what I did. Right. But uh, then I started to get a little more introspective and a little more... Uh, I got more patient with being on stage. When you're on stage, at the first, like, the first 10, 15 years, you don't really know what you're doing. You're still learning. And then when you get to about 20 years, you start to calm down. And you start to feel on stage like I can, I could take a little longer time to explain some of these things, and I could wait a minute for the laugh. I could go down a road before I get to the laugh. And once you learn that, you start to look at more interesting things. Have you always, while working as a comedian, continued to consume comedy from others? Like, where do you go to get comedy that other people are putting out? I mean, it's limited because I just I work and then I run back to my kids. Right. But when I go to the comedy cellar, I, I watch the comedians that are on, and there's a lot of great comics right now at the cellar. Uh, there's uh, Michelle Wolf and Joe List, Mark Norman, Joe Matchy. There's a bunch of new comics that are really terrific. And a bunch of old guys, uh, not old guys, but guys that have been around for a, a little longer, <laughs> right. like uh, Keith Robinson is one of my favorites. Jim Norton, I get to still see him sometimes. Right. And once in a while, a guy like Jerry Seinfeld will still come by. So all those people, I really love watching them. And talking to them about comedy, Rachel Feinstein, Amy Schumer, even though she's a big you know rock star now, she's still somebody. Else. To me, she's I see her at the cellar. Sure. So it's fun. I still get to share the stage with those kind of people. Lynn Coplets. I'm just trying to think. Well, it seems like you also have had a long and kind of special relationship with Chris Rock, right? Yeah, Chris and I have been friends since the you know 90s. Yeah. And there was a thing that I read in another interview, which I'm curious about. Like basically, you were working as a writer for his show. When, in a sense, he kind of encouraged you to go off on your own, not because he wanted to get rid of you, but because he was sort of... Yeah, yeah, he said to me, I, I was writing for his show, and everything I was writing was... I, I was just really good at it by yeah. then. I'd written for Conan in the first two years that Conan was on the air. I wrote for Letterman. I wrote for Dana Carvey's show. It was a weird experiment. I'd been around, and I'd figured out how to do a lot of things. And so I was writing bits for him, and they were killing. I was just really kicking ass on his show. And one day he said to me, when are you going to direct or do your own show? And I didn't know what to say. And he said, I, I'm happy to have you here. 
but I feel like I own a minor league team and Barry Bonds is sitting here <laughs> hitting 40 home runs a, a week. And I'm happy to have the home runs, but it doesn't, right. it's not right. Right. And he startled me when he said that. And that was 1998, 99, I guess. I didn't know that I had any kind. I thought I'll make movies and I'll write other people's stuff, but I, and I'll do my stand-up for me. But I thought no one's going to want to see what I do. I thought that ship has sailed on that kind of thing for me. I thought I was too old already at that really? point. I remember watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was 2001? Something like that, yeah. And The Sopranos. I remember those were on the air, and I thought, I, I, that there's such great shit on TV right now. I am miles away. I am in another galaxy from that. I'll never have that. I remember thinking that when I watched HBO television. And this is as he's telling you, go do this. Yeah. And uh, then I did Pootie Tang and it failed. But then I just got back to stand-up. I just thought, I'm a comedian. That's what I should be getting to. And that got me. The the road of stand-up and wanting to express myself on stage got me Lucky Louie. It's always saved me. So it did then, and it also did when Lucky Louie failed, and I just hit the road, and I was nothing but a comic from 2006 till 2010, whenever Louie happened. And during that time, putting out a special like yeah every, every year. year, and going being on stage almost every you know every night, and and just working my ass off just to comedy. I didn't care about ever coming here to California again. I didn't care about having a TV show. It wasn't interesting to me anymore. I just wanted to be a great comic. And the thing that amazes me, though, first of all, I don't know if everybody grasped, like, what it means to do a special every year for, like, five, was it five consecutive years? I don't know, something like that. Something like that. Why did you impose on yourself this rule, essentially, that you were not going to reuse anything? One year, it's gone. Well, it's just because if I empty the vessel, then I have to fill it with a whole hour of material. So that just meant I could write more. I just wanted to write more. And I also felt I was getting better by running through the material faster. I felt, I felt, I felt more satisfied with the work when I stopped it every year and started over again. It was keeping me energized. And it was, I didn't care about putting out a lot of material like I have a bunch of specials. It's just that I felt it was motivating me to improve that's all there's other people who have done that for years and in you know in in europe the whole comedy world centers around the edinburgh festival yes. and everybody goes there with their new hour and they do it and if you do it in edinburgh you can't do it anymore because it's the exposure that that gets so the european comics english comics they write a new hour every year that's been the case for a long long time what's your process are you just always carrying around a notebook or are you a guy who's got to like think in the shower when does this stuff come to you no i just i, I write jot down the keyword to an idea but the next time i'm on the stage i work it out really? it's i i do my writing on stage i don't write really yeah was the jump from stand-up to acting in terms of playing just a, a character would that feel big i mean i guess when you're doing stand-up to some extent you're probably inhabiting a character but when you're suddenly acting in lucky louie and then later in louie yeah th- was that a jump yeah it was i think in lucky louie i had a big learning curve and i had tried one other i did a, a sitcom pilot called saint louie for cbs which bruce helford and bruce rasmussen and i wrote together that was based on my act and it was for CBS and didn't obviously didn't go to air, but it was a great learning experience. That was my first time acting professionally, really at all. I'd never done it. So I learned what my limits are, you know. But then Lucky Louie was, they let me do that show my own way. And it was closer to the bone. It was closer to what I was. Yeah. So I felt like I was able to kind of do what I was doing on stage in the show. And it looked like a guy sort of doing his act in front of other actors. But also, 
I started working with Pamela Adlon, who was yes. such a great comedy partner. I've learned acting isn't about you. It's about the person you're talking to. It's about the other person in the scene. So I think if Pamela hadn't been on that show, it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't have worked. And I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it. So that was good. I guess the difference between Lucky Louie and Louie was mm. that there were these five years of stand-up yeah. specials in between. So now you go back, and what brought about the idea of Louie and also the special deal that everybody else in the world kind of covets where you really demanded and got your creative control? Well, I was on the road after Lucky Louie for a lot of years and doing the specials, and I was selling out big theaters and I didn't really need anything else. I was very happy. And I was also grappling with, I was divorced and I was raising my kids. So stand-up was something I could do without disrupting my schedule with the kids. I don't like using childcare because why have them? They could be with their mom. Right. So I, when I have my kids with me, they're um, full-time. And then I go on the road. Stand-up was a perfect way to go on the road Wednesday through Saturday, kids Sunday through Wednesday, you know. So I was in harmony. And it was hard. It was hard to raise yeah. my kids on my own and on my time. And it's hard to be on the road and do stand-up. But I was at peak performance. Yeah. And, I, and I knew I was really capable as a stand-up after 25, 30 yeah. years of just paying hard dues and not feeling like I was particularly great at it through all that time, I all of a sudden could witness that I'm selling out huge theaters and I'm able to do, you know, 90 minutes and then an encore. And the audience still wants more. Right. I'm not bragging. I'm saying those no, are facts that I was living. Right, irrefutable. And I was it. I just was like, this is the best I'm ever going to be at this. So... I didn't care what was on TV. I didn't care about being on TV. I wasn't interested in it. But uh, the last thing I did on HBO before I did, after Lucky Louie, I did a little pilot that was like a sketch pilot. And I made these videos. They gave us very little money to work with, but I made some videos. And I they, they passed on the show. But they let me keep the videos, and I put them on YouTube. I think I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of those weird little videos. But anyway, I came to L.A. and did the Wiltern Theater and... My manager, Dave Becky, who's a brilliant guy, wanted to bring a bunch of network people to the yeah. show. And I said, I don't want to play for network right. people. And he said, there's going to be you know, 1,500 people there, and 100 of them will be network people. So I'm like, <laughs> right. fine, whatever right. you want. Right. So I don't know if Langraff came to that show, but there was uh, I got some interest from NBC and some big networks yeah. that were ready to throw down some serious money to have me develop a TV show. And I was very ambivalent about it because there's part of me that thought, yeah, maybe we cash in and make something. But I was very jaded as to what that meant. I knew if it was a network, it meant doing a show that wouldn't be me. Right. And that it probably wouldn't go on the air. And we would end up getting a big guarantee of money against failure, and then we'd fail. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know if I want to do that. Right. I'd been down that road, and right. I thought, there's no, I'm doing great. Right. <laughs> Why take that on? Right. And then part of me was like, I don't know, maybe I could be a grown-up and make a, make a series. Maybe there's a way to do it and have it be something that would be okay. But I wasn't, I really, and also, no one was going to let me do a show in New York City. Nobody. Just absolutely nobody was going to let me launch and create a show in New York City. And there's no way I was going to take a bunch of time away from my kids. That's just, that was a non- And they couldn't non, move out here. They no, were, you, because yeah. their mom lives there. And, you know, when you're married, you can say, we're moving to L.A., right. but you can't when you're divorced. <laughs> But I was taking the meetings and getting offers. 
And then uh, Dave wanted me to meet John Langreff at FX, and I thought, that's that little channel. They just took Fox and they took the O out. <laughs> and it's some bullshit little channel, and they make little shows. Nobody cares about that. I mean, I could go make independent films if I want to do something small. Right. <laughs> I'm not, if I'm taking these meetings, it's to make money. I'm not interested in some... I don't know. I wasn't into it. Right. And so he set the meeting for me, and I canceled the meeting. And then Dave called me and said, you have to meet this guy. This guy is worthwhile. And it's one of those examples of how a, the essence of a human being can change everything. So it's like, if John was just FX, if it was just FX or whatever, it would have been like, yeah, if you don't want to go, you don't want to go. But it's like, this guy, everybody has met this guy. This guy's worth talking to. Dave had a sense of, I'm going to want to meet this guy. So I went and met John, and he was extremely bright and worth talking to. And he said, uh, I'll do whatever you want, whatever you want to make. And I told him, I'll make a sketch show. I think I had set, set that ahead of time. I told Dave, tell them to go watch the YouTube channels. Right. And if they want, I'll make that, little sketches. Right. And John said, I'm not into a sketch show. When I watch your stand-up in the very vital way that you talk about your life... That's what I want to show about that. And I'm like, well, that's being bid on for lots of money <laughs> by networks. <laughs> right. And you're never going to be able to pay that. Right. And he said, yeah, but you could do it the way you like doing it. And then he said, why don't you do a sketch style show that has that looseness of format, but about one subject, which is your life. And I, that made me stop and go, hmm, I wonder what that would be. So then uh, they made an offer that was like, I don't know, $200,000. And I was like, that's what I get? And they're like, no, that's what you spent on the whole show. You're and saying per episode. Per episode. Yeah. 200 grand per episode, all in. And I thought, no fucking way. <laughs> right, because you're I getting struggle. this money thrown at you from these yeah, other... Yeah, and also I'm uh, <laughs> selling out theaters. I don't need right. this shit. Right. <laughs> and then um, John called me. At home, and he said, because I had said no. And he said, uh, look, uh, I get it. You want to be Charlie Sheen. You want to be a network star. I want you to think about what goes into that. And if that's really what you want, then I can't argue with it. Because that's a, that would be, you have that, I think you could get there. Can you share what does go into that? Some of the things well, that Well, being you a network, yeah. I mean, this was when Charlie was, right. you know, this is before. On top of his game. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, it was when he was on Two and a Half Men, just right. to be specific, right. and everything was all cylinders firing. And so that would have meant living in Los Angeles. It would have meant doing a show that's 10% me, 90% somebody else, mm -hmm. being exposed to national television, which is takes its own tax on you, and not seeing my kids and, you know. Having to do a lot of media. A huge amount of media and press and upfronts. And so he pitted that against, he says, this isn't going to be much money. But he said, this is how we make shows. And he told me about the business at FX and how they try to make shows for less money and go into profit quicker. And that he would give me some participation in the profit. And he was just sort of hinting that he would do it the way I wanted to. And I, I said, well, the one thing I had left, he left me with about doing a sketch show about my life, I said... I'd seen Annie Hall recently, and in Annie Hall, he has like a cartoon for a minute. He goes back in time all the day. He has uh, people step forward uh, out of character to talk to right. him and all this loose stuff. And I said, I, uh, that kind of thing appeals to me. And he goes, listen, if you want to make 
Annie Hall, the TV series starring you, I'm I'm all for yeah, it. Yeah. And so I said to him, the only way I do this is if you send me two hundred thousand dollars to make a pilot, and I make it, and I'm I'm not going to give you a script. I'm not going to write a script and have you approve it. I just don't think I care enough to do that. But if you send me the money, wire it to me. <laughs> me and my producer Blair Briard, who I work with, we'll we'll make something in the few months and we'll send it to you. That's the only uh, it's a risk on your part. You're not going to know what I'm making. I don't know what the show is yet. But I need the money in my bank account in order right. to even think about it. He said yes right away. To wow. That. And that's how we made the pilot. Were you surprised that he went for that deal? No, because it was really simple. It wasn't very much money. Right. And I had credibility. Yeah. Enough that if he gave me the money, what am I going to go take off with $200,000? <laughs> <Casino.000? Right. laughs> it's not that much money. Right. Or if I made shit, like just right. a, took a shit and filmed it, <laughs> then he could go, all right, well, now everybody knows that about you. Right. And all they know about me is that I took a shot that every anyone would defend. Right. It also put a tremendous amount of pressure on me. And I thought, now I want to make something blisteringly great. Right. Now I want this to be so. I just want to knock him on his ass. And this is what you're talking about just making the pilot. Just the pilot. Yeah. I wanted the pilot to be so fucking good that yeah. you can't believe I did it for $200,000. Yeah. And then it became an obsession. Yeah. So that was it. Then I really gave a shit about the show and applied everything I'd learned, everything to the show. And then uh, we shot the little pieces, the stories, and then I thought, I don't know if I want to be on, I'm, a, I'm playing a comedian. And I had an hour, the thing was I had an hour ready to go next. I had a, a good hour that I was looking to shoot. And I thought, I can't touch that material because that's for the hour. And then I realized that's really dumb. This series <laughs> is could be a great thing. Right. So if you're signing for the Yankees, you give them your home runs. You don't right. take them to the next <laughs> so, team. Right, right. So I took that hour and performed it at the Comedy Cellar and shot it and uh, peppered it through the show and realized that was an enormous asset that I had was that well-honed material. Yeah. So once I saw the pilot, I was like, I knew it. I knew we were going to go to series, and I knew the show would be and successful. And what was his response to you about the pilot? He loved it. Yeah. And he had a couple of notes, which were smart, mm-hmm. but he saw the whole edited thing. He didn't even read a script, so there wasn't much opportunity to give me much notes besides how to cut it. Right. Um, which you're he, doing yourself in your apartment? Yeah, I was doing it in, on my laptop, <laughs> on my MacBook, using Final mm-hmm. Cut Pro, <laughs> which we later abandoned for Avid. Okay. Avid's right. better. Sorry. <laughs> But that's what Apple gets for obsessing with their phones and leaving behind the, the yeah. professional market, which is what we carried them through yeah. all those years that Dell and right. Microsoft was beating them, and they left us behind. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. So, obviously, very quickly, mm. certainly with critics and I think with audiences, people really got on board about Louis. They loved Louis. And yeah. part of it was just the freeness of it where you could have a story that is totally unrelated to the next episode's you know, plot. Or you could have a just the, the sense that you were doing things that really nobody else was doing. And I wonder for you, though, with the acclaim came a lot more, I would imagine, fame and recognition of you. And I'm curious how that itself affects your ability to be a comedian, because I would. I, it seems like a lot of that is about observing other people behaving naturally and then yeah. using that. But if they're not behaving naturally around you anymore, how do you get new material? Well, I live in New York City, which is probably the best place for that. And yeah. if you walk around the streets... I walk all over the streets. I use the subway. I'm just a normal New Yorker. And I get recognized a bunch in a day. But a large percentage of the day, nobody cares. So I just live in the real world. I stay in it. That's all. So I've never had any lack of... Uh, life is still life. And I'm raising two kids. And it's still you know very difficult. So I've never had a hard time. And the evolution of Louis the show, does it come to you in spurts? Because we've had a few. We're currently in a... A hiatus, there had been another one for a little while. Is the way that you do it just, and I guess allowed by your arrangement with FX, that you just do it as inspiration strikes? Or how does that work? Yeah, I don't uh, ever want to do the show because I owe another season. I don't ever want to do a show because it's my job, because I don't think that's fair to anybody. Uh, there have been times where I've done the show because there's a bunch of people that work for me, and also I, I'm indebted to FX. So I want to give them as much return on their investing in me as possible and I, I want to keep people employed that work for me but that can't I'm not helping any of them if it isn't coming from a very important place which is a creative real inspiration like I want to tell this story so every time I've felt that tap out I've stopped yeah so that's that's the we I make the show when I'm ready to make it yeah so while on a hiatus from Louis why did you a guy whose whole background and your whole life has been in comedy mm -hmm. wind up making this other show, which there's certainly comedic elements, but I think, I wonder if you would agree, it seems to be more to be a drama. Or it is a drama. It's a drama or a tragedy. You yeah. can call it a tragedy, yeah. which is that other mask. You know, it's not a drama. It's not comedy drama. It's comedy and tragedy. Yeah. I guess I just wanted to write about this family, and these characters came to life very quickly for me. And I just started taking down their story. I just started imagining it and telling it. And it got very sad and it got very tragic and very difficult and painful. And that's what came out. That's How just quickly what was did there. it pour out of you? I mean, I started writing it in August or maybe just towards the end of July. And I was done in October or something. I mean, I would write every, I would, I would pour through an episode very quickly and then kind of recover because they were <laughs> yeah. very emotional yeah. to write. Then I'd wait and then just dive right back in and shit out another one. And, I mean, not shit out like I didn't care, but it just <laughs> yeah, pop it like out. I couldn't help it. Right, right. And, um, and while you're writing this, are you imagining how it's going to get out to the world? Well, I knew I was going to do it myself. I knew I was going to do it on the website. I wanted to test that vein, see how what was in it. Because um, you've previously done that with selling tickets to your tour. I sold right? tickets to my tour on my website, and I sold my stand-up specials, yeah. uh, two of them. 
And what even brought about that idea? Because, I mean, not many people were doing that before you. Well, because nobody, when I made Live at the Beacon, nobody was, stand-up specials weren't interesting to television at the time. I, I went to HBO and said, I've got another one. And they said, well, we only really do stand-up specials for people who have shows here. HBO used to be the place to go for comedy. Uh, when Chris Albrecht ran HBO, he started as a doorman at the Improv Comedy Club. Wow. And he was devoted to stand-up comedy. It was very important to Chris that stand-up be on HBO, the best stand-up be on HBO. And he had Carlin doing those specials. You know, David Brenner, everybody did their specials there. And it didn't matter what else they were doing with their careers. HBO was where that got done. And so you called it an HBO special. Right. Nobody said stand-up special. It was when is this guy's HBO special. Right. So Chris Albrecht is, like, totally responsible for that. Yeah. Uh, Chris Rock's specials. Then when he left the channel, they became more common in terms of, like, they would do a special for someone who was on their network who was working with them so they could promote that person. But I think they had forgotten what that property, what it was about to have that. Then you could go to Showtime. I had done a special there before, but it just wasn't the same. And I kind of knew what those prices were, what people would be willing to pay. But I became interested in, what if I throw this on a website and create a, a way to buy it that's a little bit unique and... I had a high demand. So when I put shows on sale, they would sell out immediately. So I wanted to know, if I go directly to the fans, can can I get money that quickly, that fast from them? Because I can make a very good stand-up special right now, I knew. so Because I knew how to do that. Um, anyway, it worked. And so really, it worked first with, as you say, Louis C.K. Live at the Comedy Store. I mean, I've heard figures that were amazing that in just two days or whatever, four It took about months. a week to make a million bucks on Live at the Beacon. Okay. Then it took another... What year was that? That was 2012. So it took another four years to make another million. Yeah. <laughs> so the first million came very fast. Second million came slowly. Comedy Store did it a little Blow better, up, actually. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, and then between those two, I went to, at that point, HBO said, well, we really would like to do a special, please. <laughs> and so I did, oh my God, there. Although they right. gave me video rights to it. Okay. Not, I was only willing to do it if they, because you can't buy, oh my God, anywhere else except right. for my website. But it was really on the basis of the phenomenal success of Live at the Comedy Store yeah. that you thought, let's put Horace and Pete up here. Yeah, so I wanted to say, I've always thought I want to use this site. And when I've made overall deals with FX to create television, I've always carved out my website as a place that I can create content anytime I want. So when I started to piece together what Horace and Pete was going to be, I started to get excited about different ways to do it, like make the episodes as long as you want. Right shot as a sitcom but without an audience let it feel like a play have an episode where two people talk and nobody else is in it or a Laurie Metcalf 10 minute monologue 10 minute monologue before you know who she's talking to and I started to think this is going to be a little tough to fit into the into the FX frequency into how they make television just stylistically and then the other thought I started to have was nobody knows I'm doing this right now nobody knows and I don't have to tell anybody. And what would it be like to have this exist suddenly without ever having told anybody? You were Beyonce before Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> but Beyonce, as soon as she opens, cracks open her front door, everybody rushes in because right. she's Beyonce. Right. And music is different. Right. This was a full-fledged production with an all-star cast yeah. shot as well as any TV show you can ask for without anybody knowing that it exists and have it just come on and just put the episodes on and don't tell people how many are coming. Don't program it. 
They just get an email from you. Just get an email and let them sample it. Don't answer the phone when people call to ask about it. Of course, we got an enormous amount of press requests and I ignored them. Because things were leaking out or whatever? Well, once the show went on the air. Oh, I see what you're saying. I, 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 I'm amazed that we managed to keep it yeah. a, a total secret. I, I called because I went straight to the cast members in person so I wouldn't have to go out and cast it. Right. But once I had to make their deals... I would get on the phone personally to each of their agents and managers and say, it's just really important you don't tell anybody. Now, I'm speaking to people I don't know. Right. And I give them a lot of credit because none of them yeah, leaked. told anybody. Right. And they could have done it without my knowing it was them. But before you even made a deal, how do you go to somebody like Jessica Lang or Edie Falco or whoever who's been doing this stuff forever on TV? Were they able to instantly wrap their mind around what you were suggesting this would be? Yes. Yeah, so, well, part of the thing I said to them, I think that made it, I said, I'm doing this. Also, I don't think I could have done this for FX in terms of the cast, mm-hmm. because it would have been like, I took Edie Falco, who is Showtime's crown jewel right. in drama, and, or I guess that was a comedy. And then uh, Steve Buscemi, right. who's coming off a HBO. brilliant series on HBO. Right. <laughs> and then Jessica from right. FX. Right. You're bringing them on. I'm bringing them all in, and then Alan Alda, just a right. Hall of Famer, right. still firing on all cylinders. And I, I don't think if they were going to FX, it would have been a different deal yeah. for them to come and say, this is where I'm going to spend the next... You're asking a lot of an actor to come on to a series, because they know that they're going to promote the series. They're going to talk, they're going to be on a magazine cover. I told all these people, you don't have to promote this show. I'll never ask you to go on a talk show or to the TCAs or any of these things. You're not going to have to do it. Right. You just show up. And I had I knew what the show was by then. Right. I knew how we were going to do it. I said, you're going to work two, maybe three days a week, a few hours a day, and then you're done. And we're just going to make the show in Manhattan very easily. I found a studio that was in midtown Manhattan, wow. which was very expensive, but I did it because I knew it would be easier to get people right. to come and work on it. And it's for my website. It's not on television. And it's something new. And if you don't like it, I told everybody this. I'll kill your character and you can leave. If you don't like how it's going, you don't have to stay. I, and I'm not going to make you commit to it. You can do other projects if you want to. You can whatever. So that got them interested. Yeah. But it was the the scripts that are, they liked. They got really intrigued by the characters and the way they were written. And that we were going to shoot it in this different way. I think they were all really... I just caught a bunch of people that were interested in trying something new. Was the aspect of shooting it, because I guess Louis is what people call single camera, right? This yeah. is a multi-camera. That's right. But almost always the multi-camera is accompanied by either the live audience or a laugh track or whatever. That's right. So when you suddenly have that format, but without that, did it mm-hmm. worry you that it could feel like there was something missing? I was only excited by that. I was very yeah. excited. I just knew multi-camera show with no audience. Because on Lucky Louie, we did multi-camera and tried to bring back what was great about multi-camera in the 70s, which was that it felt performed. Right. But we took out the thing that multi-camera has gotten to a place where it has no relation to anything because they're cut very quickly. And, you know, they have this guy, his name is the Laugh Man, and he goes to the post-production and he (laughs) has a box that has laughs for every show. And the reason you need the laugh man is not because nobody laughed. It's not a dishonesty thing. It's not because nobody laughed when they shot the show. It's because the laughs are too... Real laughs are long, and they kind of taper off, and they're irregular. Right. So a real performance is like somebody talks a little laugh, and then... But 
sitcoms aren't written that way. No. They're written like this. I say this, ha ha. I say this, ha ha. I say this, ha ha. Constant, constant right. joke laugh, joke laugh, joke laugh, joke laugh. That's not natural. No audience can laugh in the short span that they're meant to. So the laugh man shaves the laughs and makes them into a shape that fits. And it's just, a, it puts me in a trance. I can't hear any of those shows anymore. Is there any multi-camera TV comedy today that you do enjoy? No, I don't. I don't. I, I look at I look at them. Well, you know what? Uh, there's a couple of new ones. The Carmichael Show yeah, yeah. and Blackish. Yeah. Those are both very worth watching because they've given those folks some room right. to be somebody, to be a character and just talk a little bit. And I think that's fascinating. I'm really excited for those shows. Yeah. I haven't seen much of them. But uh, those are exciting. And, and I, I, from what I understand, the Carmichael show is going back to taking on some tough subjects. on uh, Very uh, much. And that's very worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. He's a talented guy. The aspect of doing this like a theater production of Horace and Pete, even up, right up to including an intermission. I mean, the idea that you yeah. have an intermission. Why does that exist there? The intermission? Yeah, why is that? Because... Uh, I knew that the show felt like a play. It felt like because folks were just standing there and talking and arguing and fighting right. for a long time, for as long as I wanted them to. And I also had this feeling of I wanted to feel like you're watching something that doesn't stop. That's another difference with sitcoms is they'll then cut to the diner, then cut to their apartment. And the show moves through cutting. But a show that moves through dialogue, through something someone said or a mood changing in the room, that's different. And so I wanted it to feel like that. And when I got to the middle portion of the episode, the first episode, I knew I want to stop there. And then I thought about saying intermission. I'm trying to remember if I decided that before or after we shot it. I don't remember. You don't think it was in the script? Well, also, I had been working with Paul Simon about with the music. Yeah, which is awesome. And he had created, this is how it happened, because I went to his studio and he played some pieces for me and I really liked them and then he started to shape it into this tune. Then he put on like a scat vocal track where he's just singing, oh my, oh my, and humming and stuff to give a sense of how the vocals will be shaped. Yeah. And he sent me home with that on a CD. And he said, if you like this, I'll try to come up with some lyrics that fit that vocal thing. And also he had created this sort of intro of this thing that makes his guitar sound like a harp. And then it goes, and I knew right away that's going to be, you're going to see the Horace and Pete sign. And then the guitar will take you to the show. So he had created that intro that was going to be a musical intro. He and I had already decided there's going to be a musical intro to the show that will be short. And that the theme song, the entire theme song, yeah. would be the tail credits. He, right. he felt strongly about that. He said, you shouldn't hear my voice until the end of the show. And I was cool with that. Yeah. But so when he sent me home with the scat vocals, I loved it. And then he came up with lyrics and he did a version with lyrics. But I had fallen in love with the scat vocal version because I listened to it constantly. Yeah. And I listened to it as I was writing. I was still writing then. Wow. So I asked him, can we keep the scat vocal version and find a place to put it and he said not the way I gave it to you you gotta let me redo it <laughs> so he redid it with a little more form to it right although he left it ragged because I wanted him to then I thought you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna make an intermission I'm gonna just I'm gonna to let you just it. listen to him yeah and look at the word intermission while you listen to him that's how it happened that's cool 
Uh, and also, this all of this was exciting to me because right. no one was going to know what the show was. So the only information you could have when you first got this show was to look at your timeline and see that you had 60 minutes right. to go. That's all you could know. Right. But you're watching, you go, okay, this is a new show. I don't know what the fuck he sent me here. <laughs> all right, five bucks, I'll pay it, right. I guess. Some of them would say no. I knew they would. Right. I, that, that To me, that's what, what this was all about. You get an email from me on a Saturday morning. And you go, what is this? Google it. First thing I knew people would do, go Google Horace and Pete. There's no hits on it. I mean, even from another story. Right. There's never been a Horace and Pete together in any story. So they go and they go, I don't know what that is. Right. All right, I'm going to Louis C.K. news show. Uh, no. I don't know what this is. Fuck it, I'll buy it. <laughs> Pay the five bucks. Right. Saturday morning. I can't even get anybody on the Twitter to tell me what this is. So, okay, watch it. It, it feels weird. It's, it's somehow, it doesn't look like a movie. It looks like a... I, I knew that people wouldn't analyze it in words, but there would be this feeling... This doesn't feel like what I'm used to looking at. Right. Or what I expect hey, from Louis. Steve, yeah, Steve. Steve oh, so there's Louis fucking doing his thing. There's Steve Buscemi. Shit, I like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> and now they're just sitting and talking. Is that Stephen Wright? Some of us will know who Stephen right. Wright is. That Nick DiPaolo, who he's, you know. That's not Jessica Lang. That's not, there's no way that's Jessica Lang sitting at the bar. And then here comes Alan Alda. And then after the first half, and then when intermission comes up, you go, I don't understand this i don't know what the word this is taking me and then you come back and here comes Edie, amazing falco and then they get into this blistering fucking you know family ending argument and either you're in it or you're out you're you may not be interested you may not like it but you won't know it's just it was such a fresh way to do it but did that feel in a sense because you are the guy who's the most on the line here you put up the funding you you know on the one hand it's a nice experiment it's cool like let's see if people go for it on the other hand was there a sense like shit i need people to go for this i didn't need it anytime you need them to it's you're in you're in a lot of trouble the reason that louis on fx worked for me and i was able to be very brazen about how i did it was because i didn't mind the show going away i had had a tv show and lost it and i was a successful stand-up so i didn't have a problem and i'd made a movie and everybody hated it I have no problem with something going down in flames. I'm not afraid of that. It's very important to me that it works, but that doesn't come from fear of failure. That's okay. So what was the thing with Howard Stern about where it was like, I am essentially broke as a result of... Well, there was just a weird distortion of what I said because I said on Howard Stern that I took debt. I I mean, Howard's a comedy guy, so I wanted to make it sound funny. Right, right. And I knew he would laugh if I said I'm in debt. Right, right. And, you know, because I'm talking to a guy who has an income of, I think, $750 (laughs) million a year. That's insane. And so he's looking at a guy. He's like, why did you... He's The premise of Howard's interview was, why did you do this? And why don't you just go get money from people? Right. And why don't you go do commercials and just have a career like <laughs> everybody else? So I knew it was funny to him right. that I was being such a jack-off and doing this and right. wasting my money. So I told him, yeah, I'm in millions of dollars in debt, which I was technically. <laughs> right. I took a line of credit to finish the show. But there's no other way to make a TV show. Every TV show that you ever see is running a deficit. They're all made at a deficit, and it takes some time to make your money back. But you as an individual are fine. An individual taking on debt is a different, it has a different impact. Right. But so, yeah, I, I, I took debt so I could get through production, but I knew that I would make the money back. I knew it. 
Right. I almost have. I mean, uh, in a couple of months, the show will be paid for. So why then? I mean, as a fan of it, I'm sad that you recently announced that it's not going to be coming back. So, so that's another crazy. It's just there's a weird thing going on right now. Yeah. With the internet, <laughs> and it's different from when I even the last tour I did to do Louis. Right. The last time I did a lot of press was whatever season five of Louis. Right. And it's changed since then. Because every time that I spoke on the radio or anything, a kind of staggeringly false thing would get printed about it on some website right. and then picked up by every single news source right. without checking their own. Nobody, nobody, it seems, goes and does their own reporting on these stories. They just pick whatever, whoever gets it first. That's the word on but the thing. But in fairness, it's not easy to grab you for an interview to clarify. Yeah, but folks could check. Like right. a, a fact like Louis C.K. cancels Horace and Pete right. because of financial concerns. Right. That is a fact that you printed that doesn't exist. And anybody could have called my publicist right. and said, did you cancel Horace and Pete? Well, I didn't get the sense that it was because of the financial concerns. I just got the sense that you were not going to continue it. Well, but the thing is, I finished it. thing is over. I mean, I finished it. It's the, fir- the first season was complete. Right. Here's what happened. I was writing an email every week to my fans. Yeah. With every new episode. But the 10th episode was the last one. And I didn't want to say, here's the last episode. Because I had a very dramatic ending to the season. And by the way, I don't know if it'll be the... I don't know if I'll do it again. But that's up to me. I mean, but season one is over. But when you say again, you, you, you're, there is a possibility that some combination of the same people dealing with the same plot... Could occur. I could again. do a second season of Horace and Pete. Of course, I could, and I'm considering it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Okay. I know I will do this kind of show again. We put the bar in storage, and I can't let go of it. I love that bar, yeah. and I love those characters, and I certainly love that cast. And they all love doing, it and they want to keep going. So we may do it again. It depends on what I write. But the this first season has a very dramatic ending yes. to it, and I wanted that ending to have its full impact. And the way I sought to take advantage of the fact that we are working in the dark and folks were watching in the dark, was for them not to know that the 10th episode would be the last episode. I saw a huge dramatic value in watching an episode and the ending being so dramatic, not even having known that you're watching the last episode and going, fuck, it's over. Jesus. And the impact that that would have would be heightened by the 10th episode going out with just, hey, folks, here's another episode. And I wrote some smarmy thing. And here it is. Enjoy. (laughs) But because I had been communicating with the fans through these emails, I wanted to say goodbye to them on the season. I wanted to say, so I said, okay, well, that was, obviously that was it. Right. To people who who watched it. Right. That was it. We did it. Thanks for watching. This was a great experience. I miss doing the show. I'm sad not to be doing it. Now it's finished. Now it's complete. Now I'm going to go tell the world about it. Now it's there. Because TV isn't really an event anymore. It's something you, uh, it sits there. It's constant. So I thought, now I'm going to, as I always planned, I would then, when it's over, then go hit the brakes hard and promote the show. finish over, what people misunderstood is that just meant the season. Well, the reason they misunderstood it is because a specific website, (laughs) time.com. By the way, my mom grew up reading Time Magazine. To me, Time Magazine was like, that's the news, you know? They wrote cancels the show which is a, a that is a big leap to yeah, take yeah yeah and then they say 
they use the big in big letters. Now it's finished. They not only took it out of context, created a context for it, and that just went like. And then fire. that went, and they, no one called me and said, "Did you cancel Horace right. and Pete?" Because if you're going to extrapolate that from right. something I said, right, I, and I'm the network, right, you know, like like if if John Langreff or the head of NBC has a series. And at the end of the season, they said, wow, so that's it. That that was really some season. And someone felt, it, thought, it sounds like he's saying he's canceling right. the show. And just, they would call NBC right. and say, are you canceling it? And they'd go, no, of course not. We're canceling it. So did you have to call all your people and explain? No, like, I'm yeah. not going to bother. Yeah. Because everybody, so they so uh, Time prints that and everybody else prints it as a fact. And if you're a casual reader, which everyone is. Right. Why does anybody give a shit about me and my stupid show? They just sort of glance at it and go, oh, fuck, it's over. Well, now that we know that it's not over. No, and- I mean, why would I cancel my own TV show? I mean, I'm paying for it myself. A cancellation means right. drawing an end, closing the bank account, saying we're not doing this anymore. I finished it. I finished the episode. I, why would I do a complete first season? Right. And then say it's can- canceled. Do you know why I think people probably made the leap is the, the first issue, which is that they, going back to the first issue, they understood incorrectly that it had been such a money loser for you that it's like there's no way you're going to continue it. Because after the Howard Stern interview, the story was he lost money. I said that I invested money and I borrowed money. Right. But so the far more interesting way to put it on a website is the money's gone. Right. He lost the money. Right. I didn't lose the money. I invested it. So they thought you were cutting your losses. Right. They didn't think it. It's, this is this is on purpose because right. it's just more interesting and it's a better click. Well, this is great news. It might come back. And sure. I, and let's just give – because I know people are still – because it doesn't have the built-in promotion and support and publicity that a network show might have. Right. Like let's seize this moment. If somebody wants to go and check out Horace and Pete and catch up with the first 10 and then hope there might be more, mm-hmm. what should they do? Go on my website. And Which is? Buy it. LewisCK.net. Yeah. And they can buy all 10 episodes for 31 bucks, or you can buy them in pieces if you want. Right. Um, you can gift them. You can, you can gift it. You can complete your – if you could buy one and then complete your season, that's what most people do. We were watching the, the highest right. trend is to buy episode one right. and then complete the season. Well, and if you forget your password like I did, you have the great pleasure of getting an error message that that's says right. you're a moron or something. That's right. <laughs> and the website is still what it was right. when I made the, the special, which is that it's very simple to use. Right. It's just click and buy. And we're right. going to make an app for the for the website that will come out in July. Right. So that will make it even easier. But for now, you just go on and you buy it. And the show, I mean, when you compare it to the way networks make shows, my advertising budget so far is zero. Right. I have never bought an ad for this show. And I've only just done these interviews to do personal promotion. Sure. And it's it's going to be paid for by the end of July. That's easily, by the way, the sales are going, which have increased like threefold since we stopped making it. Do you have any indication from others that have perhaps reached out to you that people are going to try to emulate this model? Other people? That- I don't know. I think I'd like it. I'd like it if other people tried it. Yeah. We'll sell the show to other services. I mean, when you put together like the offers that we've gotten yeah. for the show and the tax rebate we're going to get from New York State and the, the tax rebate we're getting from New York State. Yeah. And the amount of sales we have so far right. have put the show in the black. Well, you're in this, with the Blasio, right? We yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, you just have to be a production. You have right. to use, we used a stage, right. which is very valuable right. to them because you hire carpenters right. and stuff. 
but we with the rebate and the sales so far, we're already paid. The show's paid for. That's awesome. With no advertising, so there yeah. isn't a TV show with this kind of cast that has that kind of success. Do you have faith in the TV Academy to show it the kind of love that could put it on the map for a lot of people? I mean, if this show becomes the first independently released show from a website, as opposed to like ComedyCentral.com, mm-hmm. to get a major Emmy nomination. That's history, and I'm sure it would really put it on a lot of more people's radar. Do you think that they are capable of kind of uh, exploring it? I mean, of just, course they are. Uh, I mean, it depends on. Look, the, the the cast is great enough to be taken a look at, and also we're not underdogs. I'm taking this on as a big league challenge, yeah. so you know we're spending a ton of money and doing a real Emmy campaign. Yeah. We're we're sending uh, DVDs of the entire season right. to every voter. Right. So they're all going to get the DVDs. We're going to take out ads in Emmy right. magazine. We're going to, you know, give people a little code they can watch it on the website. Um, and this has got to be a little tough for you because I know that you hate the very concept of Emmy campaigning, but well, sometimes I do, you know it's funny because like I learned a lot from stand up. A lot of things keep going back to stand up for me because I know what it means to go to a theater and sell it out and get a piece of the profit. And that's very different. When you start as a comedian, even as a headliner where you're the, the attraction, when you first start, nobody cares who you are. They're there because they like that comedy club. So let's say you go to Go Bananas in Cincinnati, which is a fine comedy yeah. club. Or the Acme in Minneapolis, which is a great club. Right. You go to that club... And they hire you for a week. You, they hire you. They pay you like $3,000 for a week. That's, that was pretty good when I was young. That was pretty excellent. And you do seven shows. One Tuesday, one Wednesday, Thursday, two Friday, three Saturday, and one awful show on Sunday when you just want to go home. <laughs> so that's And you live in a condo that the club right. owns, and you've got porn left from the other comedian. <laughs> and fucking Doug Stanhope's right. fucking roach clips and just disgusting things. So... That's that life, right? Right. But they, you have to do press. You come in on Tuesday, you do a show. Wednesday morning, they wake you up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and you start going to all the radio stations in Minneapolis or Cincinnati or wherever you are. And you go and you sit with DJs who don't know who you are, right. who are competitive with you, and you try to get across that you're funny and sell tickets to the fucking shows. Right. And it sucks. <laughs> and every comedian hates doing radio. And you feel like the club is making you do this. It's like, I came here to do shows. They're making me promote. And I hate it. And I feel like it's a chore that I've been forced to do. But then you start selling tickets. You start selling the place out, right? And you start making money. Then the clubs start telling you, we'll give you an extra 500 bucks if you sell out Saturday night. So you're like, I'd like that extra $500. <laughs> that means a lot to me. Right. And then you go... And uh, then you kind of want to do radio. Then you're like, I want to make this work. I want right. this to happen. Right. And then you try to get that bonus. But you know, they'll they'll say, if you sell it out, we'll give you 500. But then you get there and they put some extra chairs <laughs> to make it look like it didn't sell out. And they play games right. with you. It's frustrating. But in this case, it's your investment. It's yeah, your, right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what starts to happen. Yeah. You start to get to the point where you're if you sell tickets, if you go on the air, you can sell tickets. Right. The big object lesson for me was when I was first starting to really sell out some theaters and I sold out the Borgata in Atlantic City mm-hmm. and it was good money and so me and my agent told the Borgata let's add a second show I feel like I could sell out a second show and the Borgata said we don't think you will so let's just keep it at one show so we told them let us put a second show on sale and if I don't sell it out you, you don't have to pay me 
But if I do sell it out, right. you got to give me a hundred thousand bucks. Right. I had never made anything near that. Right. A hundred thousand dollars for one show. <laughs> but so then I went on Opie and Anthony, this radio show, yeah. and Donald Rumsfeld called in to promote a book, and I asked him if he was a lizard <laughs> in real life. <laughs> And from outer space. And he and I had this conversation where he was like, who is this guy? And I said, well, my name's Louis C.K. I'm at the right. Borgata uh, on Wednesday. And we added a second show. I kept promoting the right. Borgata show right. and asking Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld if he was a lizard over and over again. And he stayed on the air. It was like 20 minutes. What's his response? You can, he never gave me a straight answer. He kept dodging the question, which That's is fantastic. to his credit. Right, right. But um, we, I sold out the show. I got $100,000, and I just took it, and I bought a Porsche, which was a dumb thing to do, but I was like, I'm just yeah, buying yeah. a car with this money, and I started to learn that idea. Right. Okay, so, I don't know. When I worked for FX, I I wanted... Emmys are gold to them. They're, that's what they trade in. That's what means a lot to them. It gives them their credibility. It gives them other artists they can work with. So I've always worked to try to help yeah. get them their Emmys. But I have always had a feeling like if you're going out and asking for an award, you're you're kind of a schmuck. There's something that feels <laughs> bad about that. Right. Well, you feel a whorish. Uh, yeah, a little bit. But and also, what are you going to give me an award because I asked you for it? Like this is right. something you, you just want to be really cool and be like, oh my god, I got an award. Right. Isn't but that you see, nice? everybody else is asking for it. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. So there's sort of a naivete in saying right. like I'm not going to do it. And I, right. I, there are things in Emmy campaigning yeah, yeah. that I haven't done because right. they felt a little over the top. But I've gone and I've done. Q&As for Emmy voters. I don't mind doing it because I like talking about my work and it means something to the people who invested in it. It's not so bad. You know, it's fun. It can be fun. Right. And that's what that landscape is. But for this thing, I'm like, I want I want to show that Horace and Pete is as legitimate as any other TV show. I want to show that this model works. And I know it does Yeah. because it's selling tremendously well. I mean, we made last week... The sales were three hundred and eighty thousand bucks for one week. Wow. of Horace and Pete. That's really fucking That's good. Incredible. What's the overall? So, do you know the number? Like how many people have? I don't in? know because it's a. I get this thing and it's a really hard to read chart, <laughs> but I can tell you that the show, which was about four and a half million bucks to create, yeah. will have that in a couple months. Well, that's fantastic. We'll have it back. So it's selling at a rate right now that's really high. Yeah. And I'm promoting it, so it's yeah. got as much promotion to it yeah. as any series. Yeah. And we're selling, sending the DVDs. I want to go all the way to the end of the line, go to the Emmys, get Alan Alda and Emmy, get yeah. Stephen and these people, at least get them nominated. Metcalf could win guests. That would she be definitely, I think she deserves it. Yeah. I think Alan's character is something just out of, yeah. out of nowhere. No one's ever seen him do something like this. Right. And he worked so hard on it, and he was so good. Buscemi was uh, such a great, great actor on this show. Really lived the part, and, and uh, Edie just fall apart watching her. Jessica, you know, I think some of the episodes, based on what I've gotten for writing Emmys yeah. in the past, I think I'm at least a contender. I think the seventh is um, one that particularly. Yeah, the one with the transgender yes. one. I think we we got that was really came out great. So yeah. I do think that there, that's got a shot. Yeah. And then in the drama category, look as a series, you know, yeah. you never know. It it it, I, I, it depends on what those folks think of it, you know. So Game of Thrones versus Horace and Pete. Yeah, I know. It's a weird, uh, <laughs> but that's what drama's like. Drama right. goes all over the place. Right, right. And drama it ends up being about the acting. I think right. drama is really about acting on television. Right. 
So I think I have as good a shot as anybody, and I'll certainly go to the balls to the wall to try to make the, make I it think happen. That's terrific. Yeah. Because uh, if we get that far, then it's like then we can do this again. Yes. And again, we're at the. It's like we're a studio that just made a show, but we made it with everybody watching. Right. And then now we could sell it to networks. We can sell it to Netflix or Hulu or any of these places. Yeah. Is that evolving now as we speak? Like, yeah. Yes. I assumed like kind of FX would probably want to get the reruns. Yeah, I mean, we're, we've got a few offers, and yeah. we're kind of not paying attention to them right now because yeah. we want to see how far... I want to keep this experiment alive. Yeah. And again, as long as I make my money back, which I will, yeah. then it's like it never happened financially. Right, right. Then I just have this asset, and it's a long ball game. We've always been focused, I think, on television as an immediate thing. So it's like, did you make the money back yet? No, but it's coming. Right. It's coming. Right. So to me, I'd like to spend the rest of the year seeing how it goes as a, in the wild. Right. <laughs> and then when it's time... Yeah, you deal with it then. Sell it. And then I can split these checks with my cast, who all own you know big pieces of the show. Nice. They're all profit participants. Nice. So. Well, the last question I have is this. I know that in addition to all of this, you are, I believe executive producer on Baskets, the Galifianakis show. That's right. Better Things with Pamela Adlon. Pamela Adlon. One Mississippi with Tig Notaro. That's right. So, I mean, it's not like there's a lack of things that you're working on now, but is there anything left for you, just big picture, that specifically you haven't done yet that you would really like to do before, you know, all is said and done? And also, part B, is it your gut feeling that Louis will be back, the show Louis, on FX? So, okay, well, as far as other things, um, Albert Brooks and I are making an animated show together for FX. That's awesome. And uh, I love working with him, and he's super funny, to, and it's me and him talking, and we're the voices, and we're writing it together. So that's a big ambition. I really, And that's animation. I have never done it. No. So that's new. I'd like to go back to what I just did with Horace and Pete and try that again. I'd like to write a play sometime and do a, a play on stage. Yeah. And then I'd like to make a movie. But these things, you can't do them unless you have the thing, you know. It's like Steve Martin used to have this bit where he'd say, you can have $1 million and never pay taxes. This was his bit. Like right. a car, a commercial. Right. You can have, I'm going to teach you how to have a million dollars and never pay taxes. First, get a million dollars. Now. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I always think of that bit. <laughs> right. So I'd love to make a Broadway play. I've had lunch with Broadway play producers who have said, if you write a play, we will put it on. I mean, but Horace I and f- Pete is your reel for that. I mean. Right, right. Well, I'd, Horace and Pete is like a play. And, yeah. And we yeah. could adapt it for Broadway. Yeah. We could do that. I'd like to do a new piece of sure. material, too. Maybe both. Right. But as far as writing, you can make a Broadway play. i got to write. I, I have to have something I want to write. It's the same right. thing as with Louis. I don't want to make something unless it's. It's it comes from a creative place. I don't start with I want to make this kind of thing. I start with I want to tell this story, right. and then I go, okay, how do you want to do it? What kind of show? Where do you want the show to be and live? And what do you? That's second, right? But Albert's show, I do love putting things together for FX. I like bringing them talent and protecting those people and giving FX the opportunity to work with them, and then letting that turn into its own thing. Baskets, I got nothing to do with it. And I'm so happy that I helped create it. Right. Pamela's show I'm a little more involved with. I wrote a bunch of the episodes with her, but she's taking it on her own. I'm not there. Right. And it's going to be tremendous. I think that's going to be a game changer, that show. But uh, as far as Louie goes, um, I, I, uh, I think the guy that I played on the show, the just-divorced 
kind of underwater dad struggling New York comic. I don't think that guy, I don't have, I don't think I have stories for that guy anymore. But the show is autobiographical. So what John Langraff and I have always thought is that it may come back with a different set of stories from a different angle a little further down the road. And I don't know where that's from yet. So it just depends on if it writes, you know. I think for me, if I'm on TV again doing a single camera show, mm-hmm. it's Louie, you know. Yeah. But I don't know. I have no idea if it's... I needed to not know if I'd ever do it again. Yeah. I needed to feel that way. So that's the way I feel now. Well, I cannot thank you enough for all the laughs and for doing this. And it's just a real privilege. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thank you. Thank you. I pull my stool up to the bar at Horace and Peace. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.